Lisa Kaplan, founder of the Aletheia Group. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. Lisa, great to see you virtually again. You're one of the few people I got to see in person masked recently in New York, but increasingly the more and more people I speak to for this podcast, the less I actually see them, know how tall they are, et cetera. So I'm glad I actually can put you in context of of all that. So for people who are basically seeing the word disinformation almost every single day and any article they read or, you know, what they're watching on TV. Can you tell us what disinformation is and how it's different from misinformation? So to start disinformation, and I'm glad we're talking about this because it is a term that gets thrown around a lot and different people have different interpretations of what the word means, depending on which news source they watch. So disinformation is the deliberate and coordinated spread of falsehoods. The famous example that we all think of is the Russian government in the 2016 elections. There is a group of fake accounts that were essentially spreading false information in order to achieve a goal, what we call threat actors, who are the ones who are pinning up these nefarious campaigns to try to weaponize information and get it to reach you as a user and get you to see something and believe something that isn't true with the goal of altering your behavior. They're also depending on, you know, just regular unsuspecting people to spread that disinformation as part of misinformation. The reason for that is because, you know, a group of 10, 20, 30, 100 accounts, they can't account for all of the volume needed. So they're trying to see narratives that others will then hold on to, or they're amplifying narratives that may suit their own goals. Misinformation, on the other hand, it's still the spread of falsehoods, but it doesn't have that nefarious, deliberate, coordinated effort associated with it. So think maybe your grandmother, who doesn't fully understand how to use social media, but is excited to share things with you and sometimes wishes you a happy birthday on your profile picture. The kind of thing where I think a lot of people may just be sharing content that they think is interesting, that they think others might be interested in seeing. It's like almost like no matter what the agenda is, I mean, it could be something that is less sort of nefarious than believing in stolen elections or encouraging people to commit violence, but that still is disinformation so long as the intent is to create an action. Is that fair? That's fair. And I would also add in another category of that, which is information that's intentionally misleading. So one example of this as it relates to the coronavirus pandemic is when the vaccines were first rolled out, we saw a lot of these disinformation actors cherry-picking different statistics and pasting them together. So we would often see things like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are only around 94% effective. You only have a 2% chance of dying from the disease and the side effects are so bad that it's actually not even worth getting when you look at the math. Obviously, that's not how that works and that's not accurate or true, but when you're piecing together and relying on those facts that are cherry-picked into a fact pattern that is ultimately misleading and it has that deliberate and coordinated spread, that's also something to be aware of as disinformation. Is the volume that we see disinformation spread at also 
one of the reasons why there's so much more attention and concern. Like, I mean, I remember back in the day having arguments with my friends about, I don't know, some basketball thing and people would take their statistics out of context intentionally to make it seem as if whatever the Celtics are better than the Knicks or something like that. Obviously two people engaging in an argument, but the concern here is the ability for these false narratives with agendas to spread much more broadly, right? Is that one of the reasons why you've created your group in order to address this? So I think there are a couple of things that make disinformation different than just good old fashioned political spin or lies. The idea of lying or spinning content in order to achieve a goal is not necessarily new or novel. However, one of the things that we've learned over the past decade or so, and disinformation and propaganda have been around much longer than that, is when it takes place on the internet, the speed at which it spreads is incredibly fast. And so that's one of the reasons why early detection is so important, because you can sometimes catch these narratives up to three weeks before they start really gaining traction, and that gives you time to actually mitigate them. But one of the reasons why we're hearing so much about disinformation is one, because it's fast, cheap, and easy to do. And so more and more individuals can create their own disinformation campaign. So what we were talking about in 2016, and it's largely taking place in the political realm and being something that was monopolized by state actors, has now spread to target consumer brands as marginalized groups and communities, specific individuals, human rights activists. We see disinformation used as a means to do everything from short a stock to try to intimidate candidates from running. It really does run the spectrum, and it all comes back to the idea that we have more actors in the game. According to Oxford, there are now over 80 countries who are actively participating in disinformation efforts or influence operation efforts. And again, because it's so fast, cheap, and easy to do, we're also seeing private entities, private individuals spinning up disinformation campaigns and networks because they're financially motivated as well. So I think the reason we're hearing about it more and the reason why there's more volume is because there are more actors in this space and those actors are all trying to achieve different goals. Ultimately, though, we as information consumers are always the target because they're trying to reach us to make us believe something that may not be accurate. Is the truth enough of a counterweight to that? It really depends on the topic is what we've found. But generally speaking, the unfortunate answer is no. We found that fact-checking helps and it helps in creating a paper of record and it will help with reaching some audiences. But take, for example, the big lie, which is the idea that the 2020 election was rigged or stolen or interfered with when in reality, it was the most secure election we have ever had. The challenge is you can tell people over and over again that the election was safe and secure and the results are valid. We still, to this day, have people who believe that the 2020 election is not valid. What does help, though, what we found at least, and this is where I think the work of investigations becomes increasingly important, is when you add more context to the conversation, when you show people who is behind a disinformation narrative, how the information was spreading, that somebody was trying to take advantage of them. What we found is that the universal truth is nobody likes to be fooled. So if you can show people and really show them the fact pattern around how the information spread, you have an opportunity to create more context and then be able to insert the truth. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I sometimes think that even by creating that additional context and maybe trying to let people know that there are individuals intentionally trying to take advantage of them 
is important. I do sometimes fear that even repeating the disinformation in an effort to counter it in some ways, depending right on the circumstance, could elevate that. How do you sort of view the need to counteract with information and background versus unintentionally amplifying it by merely bringing more attention to it? This is where I think, again, really understanding the information flows and the impact that they're having becomes critically important. Because to your point, let's say, for example, and everything I'm about to say is false. A narrative is going around out there that says Lisa Kaplan kicks dogs. I do not kick dogs. I just want to say that one more time. (laughs) Yes, let's underscore that. She does not kick any animal. Big dog fan over here. But the idea being, let's say it's one or two Twitter accounts that are saying something like that. If I then go out and say, I do not kick dogs, I'm probably going to draw more attention to it than one or two fake Twitter accounts that really didn't have any traction. But let's say all of a sudden it's trending on Twitter. It's being spread across Facebook groups. There are protests outside of our office. You know, we've got a level 10 crisis. Then I may want to come out and say, hey, look at all of these pictures of me hanging out with my dog. Proof that I'm a big dog fan. Notice how I never actually repeated the rumor or the initial lie. So there are different ways that you can get around that. And it really just depends. Is this something that's being said on one platform in one conversation? Or is it happening across the internet? Is it something that can be quietly dealt with? Is it rising to the level of false or defamatory where I have legal options? There are all kinds of different ways that you can mitigate a disinformation narrative, including enforcing laws that are already on the books. Although I also am among the many people who am crossing my fingers for Section 230 reform, I'm also practical in that we may just have to get started with what we have to be able to actually mitigate these narratives in a way that you're not necessarily either repeating the lie or you're able to diffuse the network that's spreading disinformation or you're able to bring people back into an understanding of what's factual. You mentioned this becoming less sort of in the shadows and, and more publicly available, these efforts to sway a broader range of people. And I imagine and when you have public figures who are repeating that disinformation, whether they're elected officials or other people with like large social media followings, et cetera, that that tends to legitimize that narrative even more. And that has significant consequences. So are you tracking the disinformation narratives in the offline spaces as much in order to understand, is it the impact of the online space or do offline super spreaders of disinformation impact the online spread of that as well? So it's online and it's offline. So all of the work that we do is entirely open source and it relies upon information that we're able to glean from the open web and deep and dark web as well. What it is that we've found is some of those events. So going back to the idea of filing these lawsuits as it relates to the big lie in the 2020 election, that does impact disinformation narratives and conversations. But if we accept the premise that disinformation is ultimately trying to influence us as people, When we look at those different individuals who may be trusted in their communities, and that could mean anything based on any community. So it could be an elected official. It could be a public figure. It could be a religious leader. It could be a football player. People who are either spreading disinformation or misinformation or just providing a perspective that is factually inaccurate. I think the way we look at it is how does that legitimize a narrative in the eyes of people who trust that individual? On the flip side, you can also look at who else do those individuals trust in that conversation? Is there maybe a journalist at a paper of record? Is there maybe somebody who's able to get accurate information out there about any given topic? 
And that's where we've also found some successful interventions as well, specifically as it relates to partnering with different sports teams around get out the vote or being able to empower companies to be able to take control of their own narratives and put out information that their consumers trust them to share. So there are different mitigation strategies around what you're talking about as well, but it is a challenge. And this is where it gets a little bit messy because we also have to protect freedom of speech and freedom of expression. However, I do think though that there is a concern when an individual who's a trusted individual is either wittingly or unwittingly participating in spreading disinformation. So I imagine you have just an incredible BS detector when you're talking to people just because of the nature of what you do every day. Do you find that you're able to just sort of identify false narratives from, you know, the family? Like, is it just something that you see seep into your day-to-day during conversations? Oh, 1000%. My friends will joke that like the one thing you don't do is lie to me because I will know in 30 <laughs> seconds and I will ask two questions. I'll be like, well, that's not true. <laughs> so if you want to talk about a quick way to make your life an entire investigation, come join Alethea Group. Yeah. I mean, it's having that analytic mindset and that curiosity and wanting to get to the bottom of things. So that's definitely a reality. You mentioned some of the tech companies and tech industry. So how did you end up founding an organization dedicated to pushing back against what some would argue is one of the greatest threats to democracy? That didn't just come out of nowhere. So this space is so new. And one of my favorite things about it is nobody sat there in 10 years old and was like, you know what I want to specialize in? Disinformation that translates into violent offline action. <laughs> like, what? So, um, Although when I interview people for certain jobs, they actually tell me that ever since they were 10, they've wanted to do that. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> so like pre-social media and the internet got it <laughs> when we were back on AOL. So I have a kind of a weird story. So I was in DC right after college and I was working on foreign affairs issues, both in the Senate and then at the State Department and then working on judiciary and that sort of stuff as well, always from the policy lens and also communications lens. And then I had the opportunity to go back and work on my home state senator's reelection campaign in 2018. And so the only thing that was unique about 2018 as it relates to disinformation is that it was after 2016. So it had entered our consciousness. We knew that this was going to be an issue. I'm from Maine. I was working for Senator Angus King and I was the third person on the campaign. And there's just not a lot to do in January in terms of like organizing people. So I sat down and I wrote a digital strategy because that's what I knew how to do. And they were like, congratulations, you're the digital director because that's how campaigns work. Then what happened was special investigator Robert Mueller's indictment came out of the 13 Russians and how they did it. I always say he probably did not write that indictment thinking that the Russians were then going to extradite those individuals to stand trial in the United States. It was written in plain language. It's like 20 pages. If you're interested, go read it because it lays out the entire playbook. And so I sat there and I said to myself, how would we know if and when this was happening to us? What would we do? How would we respond? Because the other thing about working for an independent is you don't have the benefit of working with the parties in the sense that there's no giant apparatus. On the campaign, it's very much what you see is what you get. 
So we developed a strategy. And when I say we, I mean, I had a team of, I think, eight, and it's a campaign. So you're asked to deliver the world with a dollar. And so we figured out a way to really manually and in a scrappy way, go out and find instances of disinformation and coordination before it became a problem. And we saw all kinds of things. We saw manipulation of sports teams and the NFL to try to reach people. We saw all of these like meme pages coming from Pakistan. When you say manipulation of sports teams, what do you mean by that? So we would see, for example, different Facebook pages that would be like, and I'm making this up. It was things like, I love the NFL or veterans for football or whatever it was. It looked like it was totally innocuous. And then it would get weirdly political and it would be like, and Hillary Clinton is evil. And you're like, okay, well, she's not running and it's 2018. And also like, what is happening? And then we would figure out these pages were actually being run, not from the United States at all. It was more like content created to lure people in based on their interests than to just throw them sort of disinformation curveballs. Is that what you mean? Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And so we were able to start identifying different patterns of how information was spreading. We did things like we flagged it for the social media platforms, because especially the ones who have content moderation, they don't like it what the Senate campaigns call them and say, hey, we think your platform might be being used to spread foreign disinformation targeting the U.S. elections. And so they act on it pretty quickly. The one thing I will say, though, about all of this is it then just became, you know, we won. Winning is fun. But then it became the issue that really kept me up at night for all the reasons you talked about. Like, it was really clear to me, having seen this come from the left and the right, that this wasn't a political issue at all, that disinformation is a threat to our democracy, our economy, the Western lowercase l liberal order. I didn't think anybody was doing enough about it. As I said, the issue that was keeping me up at night, and I said to myself, 2020 is coming. I had a pretty cushy consulting job and I was like, I'm just going to go for it. And so I always say it's the smartest or the dumbest thing I've ever done, but I quit my job on the day my first mortgage payment was due. And I was like, I have six months to figure this out. And it just kind of started working and feel really fortunate. I think with the timing and then the team that we built has just been incredible. The best part about where we're at now is hiring people who have a totally different skill set. So we've got a lot of data scientists on our team, software engineers who are helping us to develop the technology and the software and the tools to meet a dynamic threat, to be able to detect this stuff before it becomes a problem. Mortgage due and the decision to not just find another entity to join, to sort of do this work with, but I'm going to create my own organization to do this. What was the calculus there? Because that's an extra moment of truth beyond just saying I'm switching gears and jobs. This was back in 2019. The space has gotten a little bit more crowded. There are a lot of people who I think are trying to tackle this problem in different ways, but there were only like two or three companies that were doing this. And I just didn't think that they were taking the right approach or the approach that I would take. Another company is really great at analyzing content that's already been taken down or identified and really explaining it to the public. And all of those things are awesome, but I wanted to build an organization that could go out and hunt these threat actors and be able to identify these instances before they became a problem so that we're not talking about what's trending on Twitter. We're talking about how to prevent something from reaching the broader public. And that's where we've really been able to find our sweet spot. So that's how I look at this problem is like by the time something is already widespread across social media platforms, or, you know, people are again, protesting in front of the office kind of situations, 
it's too late. You're in a crisis situation. How do we get out in front of that? If your stock price is tanking, you could have prevented that probably. So how do we get out in front of it? How do we identify these early instances of coordination? And how do we really solve for this problem? Because the thesis of the business, just generally speaking, is let's say, for example, we know that the Russians are messing with 5G narratives. That's something that's been widely reported. Well, people are burning down cell phone towers. Now people are going to be saying this Huawei 5G is way safer, whatever it is. How do we get telecoms companies to realize that that's going to impact their bottom line? That's the whole thesis of the business. And that's what we've been successful in doing is being able to help people realize this is a threat you can get out in front of. You don't have to wait for it to come to you. You don't have to wait for the next insurrection attempt. Like there are actual things that you can do to use this information to diffuse potentially damaging situations so that you're protecting yourself, your stakeholders, the communities that you're serving by really being proactive about managing your digital online reputation. I like that. And so you start now, there's a lot going on, a lot to be done to get to that sort of place. In the meantime, though, how do you approach a healthy work-life balance? It's a really good question. And it's one that took me a while to figure out because I think a couple things. So one, entrepreneurship in general is just all-consuming. If you're starting a company or a nonprofit, or you're even just striking out on your own, finding that balance up front is something that I wish that I had done. For me, what really helps is I am really good at compartmentalizing. So when I'm working, I'm at work. And when I'm not at work, I'm not at work. Going back to how has this impacted my social life and that nobody can ever lie to me anymore. I also don't really talk about work socially. It's the kind of thing where I think having that separation has really helped me. And when all else fails, I like to do hobbies that it's nearly impossible to check email, such as scuba diving just finding ways to really be able to unplug. And sometimes that does mean going 20 feet underwater. Sometimes it means going really fast down a ski mountain, but finding out whatever it is that really helps you to unplug, I think is really important, especially to those who are interested in entering this field, because otherwise you'll just spend 16 hours a day in like a white supremacist chat room. And you'll be like, why am I here? So making sure that you have that separation is just hugely important. This work naturally also is about appealing to people's hopefully want a need to protect our democratic institutions writ large. And so I imagine it's not just about the brand taking a hit with certain companies that you work for, but it's sort of the broader, greater good that is being impacted by this disinformation. Seeing all of that, do you remain optimistic? So I'm the eternal optimist when it comes to these sorts of issues, because here's the thing, you're right. When it comes to companies, there are some companies we work with that they're doing this because it's part of their corporate social responsibility or it's the right thing to do. But the networks that are targeting a company's bottom line are the same networks that are going to be deployed to launch disinformation around the election, around COVID, whatever it may be. And sometimes those things are all intertwined. Why am I optimistic? Well, first of all, I think that this problem is completely solvable. I think that there's no one single solution, but I think it's a combination of things. So I think it's things like we were discussing earlier about public education and getting those programs implemented and getting people really smart about the information that they're consuming and how they're consuming it. 
I almost think about it like it's the climate change of the internet and that if we're able to get all organizations, companies, et cetera, to start protecting their own customers and their own constituents and their own voters, we'll see a lot of overlap and a lot of individuals will then be incentivized to not take this lying down and instead go out and find these disinformation networks, figure out who the actors are behind it and do something about it. You know, you call 911 when somebody breaks into your house. Who do you call when disinformation starts attacking your organization in a way that starts to influence the people that you care about? So I think that's another piece as well. I also think that we as democracies, and you know, maybe this is going to sound a little too idealistic, but I think we as democracies have generally faced worse. And I think that we can get around this one too. I think that we're going to be able to figure out a way to ultimately reduce the amount of spread of disinformation by promoting good information, by promoting education, by creating a more digitally savvy population. If I didn't think it was solvable and if we weren't seeing real results, I'd be doing something else. It's really nice to hear. What advice do you have for people who want to get into this field in general of understanding disinformation, how it spreads and coming up with strategies to deal with it? I think that one of the things about this problem is that it's a huge problem to solve and we need all kinds of different perspectives. And so I always say, figure out if you want to be on the policy side, on the more forensic intelligence investigation side, or on the communication side, because those are three totally different skill sets. And so any of those would be great ways to contribute to this field. Being able to look at what's actually happening and come up with creative policy recommendations, whether it's, you know, focusing on Section 230 or coming up with some other solution that we can also try to get past or move forward. That would be a great opportunity to get involved. When it comes to the more digital investigative forensic side, which is the work that we do at Aletheia Group, Take as many open source intelligence classes as you can. Nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to analyze a domain, but there are lots of free classes online that are absolutely fantastic. So I would say really take the opportunity to learn those investigative techniques and skill sets and then apply to any of the great organizations that are doing this work. And then more on the communication side, I think some of the things that we talked about in terms of being able to identify impact, to be able to understand which response you want to use to be able to mitigate any given narrative. I think that's another really great opportunity. But I will say one of my favorite things about this field is just how collaborative it is and how positive people are and welcoming. So I think the best thing you can do just to get started is raise your hand, like get to know people. This whole community is on Twitter. Just DM somebody who you're interested in talking to. It's going to be 10 out of 10 that they end up responding and they're happy to take the coffee kind of thing. Where can people go to learn more about your work and Aletheia? So would encourage folks to visit our website. It's aletheagroup.com. And we put some of our public facing work on there and definitely would recommend following us on Twitter as well. That's where we will tweet anything new that we're putting out there. I definitely would also encourage folks to look at the think tank community as well that puts out great work too. Why Aletheia, by the way? What does that mean? So Aletheia means truth in Greek. And so roots in democracy sort of thing. And then what we're really doing when we're detecting disinformation is we're protecting people's ability to access the truth. Yeah, truth is definitely Greek for a lot of people um, today. So (laughs) I really appreciate you taking the time, really appreciate the work that we've done together as organizations and trying to push back against the impacts of disinformation, especially on the extremist landscape and really appreciate you taking the time. 
Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. And likewise, I really appreciate all the work that the ADL is doing in this space, especially to protect against disinformation turning into acts of violent extremism. So thanks for all the work that you and your team continue to do. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit american.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.